Hello, friends, and welcome to Backstory. I'm your host, Alex Roberts. Friends, a quick reminder that my two-player game of Forbidden Love, Starcrossed, is still on Kickstarter right now, and you can back it. We'll be up until May 10th. The campaign is going really, really well so far, and the next stretch goal involves me writing commissioned fiction about forbidden love, so you're really going to want to make sure that that happens. I'm seriously floored by the support that we've received so far. It it means a lot to me, not only that we can make this game happen, but also just that people like it. People really seem to like it. And so not only when you pledge to the campaign, but every time I see a tweet or a post or, you know, people talking about it anywhere, it, it just fills my heart with joy. It's the best. So thank you, everyone, seriously. My guest today is Adam Kobol, who you may recognize from the internet. He co-designed with Sage Latora Dungeon World, a game that needs no introduction, and is also one of the most popular RPG streamers on Twitch. He and I got a chance to talk about the relationship between publishers and streamers, and the relationship between play and design. I think he has some very interesting ideas, and I think you will too. Let's jump right in. Yeah, around around when I started like streaming full time and doing you know four four campaigns uh, a week, I had to retire my my local game. Though at that point it was way out of hand. Anyway, we were trying to play fifth edition with like nine players. Yeah, that gets pretty bonkers. You you work kind of a ridiculous amount from what I can tell. Like that's a lot of GMing. I think yeah. I mean, I think most most content creators kind of just like do a ton of work. It's like a full-time job being visible and on stream. And then there's like a whole other part-time job of of doing all of the other managing and things like podcast interviews and what have you. So yeah, I keep I keep real busy. Yeah. What does some of that behind the scenes stuff look like? Mm, Photoshop, Premiere, messing around with Adobe tools. Uh, honestly, like a lot of it is just like like I have a I have a pretty set up schedule where like usually Sunday is the day where I will work all day on off-stream stuff. So I'm, you know, prepping for the games that I'm running if they're games that need prep and I'm not doing that prep live. Putting together my schedule for the events page on Twitch, doing things like that, like the little kind of behind the scenes. And if I've got a vlog that I'm editing, like I've got a bunch of footage from PAX East that I got to go through. So I'll do that during that time. And then it's just like the constant hustle. It's like answering emails, being on Twitter, being in other people's streams, like participating in their communities, because I think that's a, a really big part of being a part of the kind of larger global content creator ecosphere is just like being there where other people are making stuff and being cool. So yeah, my, my butt is glued to my computer chair pretty much all day if I'm not at a convention, which is like a whole other thing. And then it's like I'm gone for six days and I'm working, but I'm not working. And it feels enough like a vacation. And I'm like, yeah, I, I took a vacation last year. And they're like, wait a second. Nope. No, I did not. I just went to PAX three times. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, 
that, that's kind of a whole funny thing, right? Where it's like, well, I did the opposite kind of work that I usually do and it was fun. So mm. yeah, I'm good. If, if fun and work were uh, diametrically opposed, then I don't work at all. Um, I think that there's a lot of conventional theory and discussion around things like work-life balance and all that that assumes a clear dividing line between work and life. Whereas for for me and for my my kind of peers, there there's no there's no division. I'm I'm both always working and not working, depending on how you look at work and labor as like a thing. It's very confusing. It it is, and I think there's a lot of like conventional wisdom that kind of comes from the assumption that you hate your work. I think so too. Yeah. And that's like a bummer place to be, right? We're like, cool, we we live in this we live in this system where we're expected to labor in a way that just like sucks. It just feels bad. And then if you do a job that is perceived as not being that way, it can really like devalue the, the job in people's eyes. Like I get that all the time that like, Oh, you play games for a living. That must be sweet. And I'm like, actually like I bust my ass to do this job. I'm a very busy person and I, I love it and I care about it. I'm very passionate about it, but like it's, it's still work. It's still labor. Right. And you're still, you know, you're doing something that you really love, but at the same time, like, you know, if you define labor as like putting money in somebody else's pocket, which it is 90% of the time, like there's still things like that happening too. Like there's still all of these like weird market forces around streaming that it's complex. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Pick a discipline and you could write a paper around it on the relationship between content creators or broadcasters and their platform of choice vis-a-vis -vis their relation to it as a company or a, a partnership or as an adversary. But it's it's very strange and and actually really cool. Like I I feel like trying to go and explain what content creation looks like to like Adam Smith or Karl Marx, they would just be like, "What? <laughs> what is going on right now?" <laughs> yeah. Oh, never mind. Then is like the addendum to the next edition of. <laughs> like yeah. Exactly. Dust Dust Capital is going to be very very different when second edition comes out. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. You know, I'm really interested in the relationship that you would like to see between streamers, like, I guess, content creators in general, and publishers, because I know that you have this like really positive vision of what that could be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think like, with publishers, I mean, we talk about the, the word publisher means a bunch of different stuff. And, and I think that you can come at it like most content creators, uh, especially streamers on Twitch are going to think when we say publisher, they're going to think of like the EAs of the world, right? the Ubisofts, right? But for me and my like tiny little island, and I think this was the, the intent that you had here that we talk about like people who make role playing games. <laughs> And yeah, they're very different because we don't really in, in the tabletop space, we don't really have blessedly the EAs and the Ubisofts of the world, right? We don't have people who are functionally sort of bourgeois factory owners who are like, make me things. And then I will use my marketing machine to sell them to people, which isn't to say that like every studio has a bad relationship with their publisher, but like in tabletop, it's like, if you made a game and that game is not Dungeons and Dragons, chances are pretty good. You own that game. <laughs> So, you know, it's a, it's a very, um, it's a much more like cottage industry sort of space where like you're playing someone's handmade artisanal role-playing game that they scrape the money together by themselves and that, that kind of publisher. Yeah. I would, I would love to, someone asked me in a, in an interview at PAX this last week, you know, if 2017 was the year that people rediscovered Dungeons and Dragons, 
what do you think or what would you like 2018 to be? And I was like, I would like this to be the year that people discover that Dungeons and Dragons is not the only role playing game in the world. And then there's all of these like amazing, beautiful, poignant, funny games out there that are great to play and and great for content creators to build shows around. And I, I feel like right now it's a bit of a like four or five person show in terms of trying to get people to to realize there's some some creators putting out work, but I think publishers are going to start getting on board too. We're going to start getting more and more people saying like, oh yeah, I need to get my hands in the game or my my game in the hands of content creators so they can show it off because that's that's a form of advertising. Whereas right now most publishers are like, what is Twitch? I've heard of this critical role. What this is like a podcast, right? But it's, I mean, these things happen and tabletop RPGs as a space have traditionally lagged pretty hard behind the rest of technology. So hopefully, hopefully they'll get there. Hopefully they'll, they'll arrive. I'm going to try and help them. Yeah. Well, what do you see as the next steps? I mean, I think just awareness right now, like that nebulous, just make people aware that this is a thing and then it matters. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about content that I can take to uh, or, or me or people like me can take to spaces like like Gamma, which is the big sort of tabletop trade show or other kind of conventions where people who are trying predominantly to market or sell role playing games uh, that they or people close to them have made and, uh, you know, doing panels there and being like, hi, so my name is Adam. I'm a professional role-playing guy on the internet. I also made a game that I would like to sell and my game sells really well because I talk about it on the internet all the goddamn time. Here's how (laughs) you can be more like me. And just like helping publishers understand the value that it's not just people playing your game, but it's essentially commercial content and there's copies to be sold there, but also that it's, you want to participate. You want to have your foot in the door in that space. And there's still time to be in there early. You know, aside from aside from Wizards of the Coast, there isn't really any other publisher or, or developer I could point to to say like, yes, these people are aggressively pursuing this space. And I would love to, I'd love to see that change. I've, I've had far, far too many emails come back unanswered when I'm starting a new show. And I'm like, hi, I'm making a new show and we're using your role-playing game. Uh, there are, you know, eight to 10,000 people who are going to tune in for the, for the first show. And we're going to have all this, this audience. What, what can, what can we do to work together? I'd love to talk about some social media boosting. Maybe y'all can, can tweet about our show when we go live. Maybe you can give me some promo codes for the PDF of your game. You know, let's work together. And then just cricks, just nothing, no reply or like, yes, we would like to be a part of that. And then we don't know how or what next to say. And I, I don't have the energy to like do that work for them. But I want to I want to teach them. I want them to, to be in that in that space with me because I, I mean, that's where I come from. Right. Small, small press creator owned tabletop role playing games is the, the, the place where I got my start. So it's still really important. And it's I mean, where do you think that that comes from? That is it just a lack of familiarity? Is it a lack of resources? Um, I mean, it, Lack of familiarity for now is going to be an acceptable excuse. I think that's still okay. Like if I, if I talk to somebody at Gen Con, Sam at like the Annie's or something, and I'm like, Hey, have you heard of this people playing role-playing games on Twitch thing? And somebody, you know, is like, uh, no, I don't even know what that is. That's it's still okay. I give them a year. That's it. I'm, I'm drawing the line after 2018. When we get to January of next year, you're not allowed. That's not allowed anymore. Small press <laughs> role-playing game developers. Know. <laughs> that's right. I'm drawing a line in the sand because I, I mean, I think like I came, when I came in to role-playing and Twitch in general, like I didn't really know what it was Ju- Justin TV, which is Twitch's predecessor kind of floated in one ear and out the other back when people were still 
calling social media web 2.0. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's how old I am. I was an adult when that was happening. But the this idea that like like people wanted to back then it was like like Big Brother, right? It was like people will put on webcams in their house and you can just tune in and and see them doing the IRL thing. And it it became Twitch, YouTubers became a thing, and it was still seen as this sort of internet subculture thing. It was based around the internet, and I really didn't, I was tuned into social media, but not that aspect of it. And when I got my start, <clears throat> excuse me, when I got my start in uh, tabletop role-playing games on Twitch, it was because fans of Dungeon World emailed me and were like, hey, these famous esports people are playing your game. You should like get in touch. And for the first year or more when I would do shows, the people on those shows would be fairly big names in that space, people with hundreds of thousands of followers. And I would, I, I just wouldn't register for me. I would be like, Oh, that's, you know, that's just, that's just my friend Dodger. And she, you know, she plays in my Shadowrun game, but like, also she's like hugely famous on the internet. But at the time I was like, that's just not the world that I'm in. And so what I think it is, is that most people who are, active or, or taking part in the sort of small press RPG community just haven't interacted with the, the Twitch community at large up until now. And now with Critical Role being as big as it is, uh, with Roleplay, with all of the other shows that are starting to kind of spring up, uh, I think that this this will be the time when people start to take notice in that space. We see those spaces start to interact. You know... I've also heard other concerns that I think publishers and especially designers have about seeing their games up on on stream. Things that people have expressed to me are, I don't know if they're going to play my game in the way that it's intended to be played. I don't know if it's going to give people the right impression of my game. I don't know if they're going to take the right tone with it. Like I, I hear over and over this sort of, Un- oh. <laughs> do you so so what's your response to that that unwillingness to to let go oh man write your game better like oh. if that's <laughs> if that's no if that's what you're scared of seriously like yeah. i that's that is my that is my feedback like if you because the okay the discipline of writing a role-playing game is taking an internalized perspective on a thing you you want to create right you're like okay in my head i know what a game of dungeon world or burning wheel or whatever looks like, right? I envision the players taking these, these types of characters, playing it in this tone, doing it this way. Cool. I'm going to write a game that gives people mechanisms and protocols to create that thing, right? It's like, um, I'm on the phone with you and I'm looking out the window and I can see uh, a river and there's a bridge crossing the river and it's like, it's twilight and there are birds and I'm describing the scene to you, right? And you're on the other end and you're painting that scene. And then I have to take the painting and I have to take what I can see and I hold them up to each other and game design, that conversation between me and you should make it such that the painting looks like the image, right? And that's that's fundamental in game design and in play of role-playing games because the GM is describing a thing, the players are imagining it, then the players describe what they do and the GM imagines it. It's the, the fiction that we create. If you're scared that your internal vision will not match the painting that players paint at their table, you need to make the conversation better. That That telephone conversation between you and the players by way of your game's design just needs to get tightened up. So when people say like, I'm scared they're going to play it wrong. Well, they won't play it wrong if you wrote it properly. But on top of all of that, you got to get over the fact that 
just because this is happening more visibly on Twitch doesn't mean that it's an aberration. Like people ask me all the time, you know, do you avoid Dungeon World streams because you think they're going to play it wrong? And I'm like, no, heck no, I love it. Because nobody ever plays the game right because you can't control that. There is there is a an alchemy, right? This is this is like you may be able to control what the painting looks like, right? There may be a river and a bridge and some birds and whatever, but you can't control if it's going to be a cubist painting or an impressionist painting or some kind of abstract Salvador Dali-esque like madness, right? You can't you can't control the way in which these things are implemented. So I think the best sort of bolstering sense you can get as a designer is just be comfortable with your design and then acknowledge that people will change it and play it wrong. And like, that's not so bad. Like it's, it's fine. The people are still going to get interested in it because they know that that's how the discipline works, right? They, nobody watches a D and D show on Twitch because they want to replicate that experience exactly. They want to be inspired, find interest in the fiction that's being created on the show, and then do it their own way. I think that that, that idea of... And we see video game producers and developers having some of this struggle too, where they're like, well, if somebody watches someone play my game, then they won't buy the game. But th the math doesn't hold out. People buy games because they watched them and they got excited about them, and because games are about making choices, they want to take control and make choices themselves. So if somebody watches me play, you know, all 120 hours of Persona 5, they're not going to avoid the game because now they know the whole story. They're going to play it themselves because they want to romance a different character or they want to portray uh, the the main character differently or they want to use a different team of, of Persona than I did. The medium, I think, supports that multiple playthrough experiencing things your own way. And this isn't anything new, right? This is like professional sports. If people didn't want to participate in something at a remove, that like you, we wouldn't have basketball or football or baseball because people would be like, well, I don't ever need to play baseball. I could just watch it on TV. They're different experiences. <laughs> yeah. And, but that's worth noting, right? That the basketball that you see when you turn on, you know, the NBA and watch that is going to be different than the basketball you play, you know, if you set up a hoop in your driveway. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, A, you're not going to be Michael Jordan. And, and B, like, you may only have like one hoop or, you may have your own house rules or you may, you know, the, the way that you deal with fouls is going to be different. Yeah. Like creating your own experience from a preset parameter uh, alignment in a game is totally natural and normal and things we've been doing forever. So role-playing games aren't, aren't special in that way. In fact, I would say role-playing games are the inverse because every game of, of say Dungeons and Dragons is slightly different because the game is built to, to house rule. It's meant to be tweaked. You're not really going to be able to change basketball around that much, but the equivalent in D and D is like, yo, this, this is fun, but what if we were playing it with a bowling ball instead? Cool. Done. Let's do it. Let's change a bunch of the mechanics around and we're having our own fun. And that's, I think much more accepted uh, in tabletop, which I think might actually speak to some of the anxiety because you've created a game that is meant to be messed with, and someone is going to do that in a potentially very public way. Uh, and I think you just have to get okay with that because it's happening. You, it's happening all the time already, right? People are already playing your game wrong everywhere. You just don't have to see it.
So <laughs> pop your head out, pop your head out of the sand, game designers, and come face to face with that. I mean, every everything that that people like Mike Morales or Jeremy Crawford have said about streaming Dungeons and Dragons is that it has improved their understanding of the game in leaps and bounds. It's given them perspective that they never would have gotten from uh, feedback or playtesting that's more direct. There's a voyeuristic quality from a game designer perspective that you can say, oh, wow, like I'm seeing things these people who are playing the game may not even have the game design know-how to understand that they're doing, but it's giving me helpful intelligence for uh, my development of the, of the game which I think is super cool. I love this. I love the uh, the strength of your convictions coming through on the podcast. That's good radio. <laughs> yeah, I mean this is this is a this is a thing I care very deeply about like three or four things and nothing else. So <laughs> I have to pour this, all my strength into these Exactly. Things. Yeah, I'm I'm heavily min-maxed in in a very narrow direction. <laughs> You know, I, I saw the funniest tweet a while ago, and I'm sorry. I wish I wish I could remember who tweeted it, but uh, they said that um, uh, watching RPGs streaming is like watching porn. It's it's really it can be great entertainment, but it's not necessarily very good education. Now, do you agree with that? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to have sex. Uh, and I think that role-playing games are similar in that, like, I try to be when I, when I play games. So for me, the game really matters because I'm a game designer and, and I'm inherently narcissistic. And if I'm playing dungeon world, God damn it, I want credit for the design, but I also believe in giving credit to the designers. So for me, there are, there's a, a mass spectrum from people who are, and I'm doing sarcastic air quotes, playing D&D, but really are just like, this is my elf voice, and occasionally we'll roll a D20, and cool, I got a 15, but I'm not really concerned about what the rules are doing on one end. And then on the, the more extreme end, and I think this is much rarer, there is the like, we are playing a complicated game, and we are taking the time to examine every mechanism as it comes up and treat it as important as the funny voices and the the ongoing narrative. And for me, I try to I actually try to lean in that direction because again, like as a game designer, I want to do justice to the design and I want to give credit where credit's due. And like when I play Burning Wheel with my uh my my cast on Roll 20, you know, the participants in that cast are me and my four players, but also the ghost of Luke Crane floating around the design because he made the game, right? Like we, we, we aren't creating the narrative from nothing. And yes, most, most carpenters don't know the craftsperson who made their hammer, but if it's a real good hammer, it deserves a little bit of credit. Uh, and so for me, I, I love showing off the systems. And, and part of that, again, is my agenda of expanding people's ideas of what role-playing games are, getting them experiencing new, different role-playing games. And the system needs to be highlighted. We choose these tools for a reason. Right. And that for me is is so important. And so I think that there's a, an element of didactic play. There is an element of like, I am playing this game to entertain you. I'm playing this game to create a f fictional narrative that you are going to be like, yes, I like these characters. I like the setting. I am compelled to continue engaging in this in the same way I would be a TV show or a book or a graphic novel. But also, I love watching my audience learn about the game. Right. We'll we'll come into a game and people are like, what is this? I don't know this game. This is complicated. And then 10 or 15 episodes later, they're like, actually, Adam, that's an obstacle for sword test uh, because there's a <laughs> minus one. And I'm just like, yes, 
Good. Now take that knowledge and go and, and do it yourself, right? Start your own Twitch show or play at home with your friends and play the game that fits for you. Become an expert in that game. Follow your passion there. And so for me, it's like, I want to show off the the cool the cool things that I know about, but I don't want to just show them off like this is a game that's making the narrative. I want to be like this is a thing you can do yourself at home. Uh, and so I try to show I try to show as much of that as I can. Okay, I'm, I'm trying to break down your priorities. I mean, there is entertainment, there is education, there's this kind of like empowerment. There's this uh, you know promotion of different systems and things that are important. Like, do, do you ever find these sort of conflicting priorities or do you have to figure out what is the most important thing? Yeah, I mean, I would say I, there's, al- there's always conflict, right? Because creating art in a, a capitalist framework is inherently conflict, right? Because I'm making something to sell. We're making a show and we want people to buy into that show. We want them to subscribe or back the Patreon or, or uh, use Roll20, right? Subscribe to that. In a way, we're, we're making, I mean, we're making saleable content, but it's also art, right? There's passion there, which isn't to say you can't make art dispassionately, but there's there's personal energy and emotion and, and all of the stuff that we would traditionally associate with authenticity and art. Um, that's all present too. And then on top of that, we're selling ourselves as business objects, right? In that you know, I'm, I'm myself as a person, but I'm also myself as like a thing you can be a fan of and engage more, uh, more fiscally in that way. So there's a lot of complexity just at the kind of content creator level. And then there's the, the game and games, uh, tabletop RPGs, especially, but they, they have this problem where, they're both an objet d'art, right? Like if you look at a really nice role-playing game with good art and nice writing, it is a it is an art object. It's a book, but it's also a toolkit that has a pragmatic purpose. And so for me, helping people recognize all of those inherent conflicts and educating them about having their best game experience is both beneficial for me because when somebody goes out into the world knowing that I'm like, yo, I believe in you. You can you can be a GM. You can teach your friends how to play role-playing game. You can have fun. I'm getting bought into a piece of that fun, right? They're going to play it. They're going to have fun. And they're going to be like, yeah, I associate this positive feeling with that time that Adam told me I could do it, right? People report, people report back to me. People come back on Twitter and are like, I GM for the first time today. And I'm like, I'm so proud of you. You did great. And that's a reaffirming behavior for both of us because I'm like, now you attach your own personal positivity to this experience in some small way to, to me and my, my bolstering that. So it's, it's obviously like complex in the sense that I'm not doing it just f- like for my own sense of self-worth or fun. You know, it does feel good and it is fun teaching people that they can play role-playing games. But also like I'm, I'm making a living, I'm selling games and I'm, I'm doing the content creator thing. And that's an aspect of it. But there's there's all of these other things that are at play while we're, you know, making the show, playing the game, building the audience, et cetera. So it's it's complex. And I just I try to be transparent about it. I don't I'm not uncomfortable talking about it, which I think helps. Uh, it certainly helps me deal with it. Yeah, well, I, I want to talk about that. I mean, I want to talk about what it's like for you in particular to be like something that people can be a fan of. How did you adjust to that? I feel like, I don't know. I've had, I've had a lot of, a lot of experience in thinking 
about this, the, the discipline of uh, s- selling a, a thing, selling an experience or a brand, because my, my background, my professional background uh, was in advertising. So I, I worked for an advertising agency for uh, just about 10 years. So as a concept, the idea of like branding and, and a brand story and being able to, to think about selling stuff was, was relatively easy to do when we started doing, doing dungeon world. And I think that the shift towards selling a variation of, of myself, something sort of side shifted by a degree or two from my like actual self wasn't too difficult, right? It's something that I've, I've already sort of been thinking about. Um, so I, I'm in this unique position that, that it doesn't feel like new science to me. I'm not like, what, what is branding? How do I sell something? It's a little bit weird because I think when you look at yourself as like an, an object in that regard, it can be a little dehumanizing if you're not careful. It's way worse if you do it to other people. Um, I think this is a problem that, that content creators have sometimes where we can get to a place where we're wondering if people are interacting with us in what we, I hate the word authentic or authentically, because I think it it's, it's a buzzword that gets thrown around to sell stuff too. So it's kind of like a fake distinction, but there is this fear that like, is this person, does this person want to play Dungeons and Dragons with me because they value me as a person and this is fun or because they think it will help them? Are they doing this in good faith? Like you, you do really have to, balance your your sort of cynicism against the the like inherent optimism of like no of course people are just like inherently nice there's a lot of deep-seated psychology in there that i think can be really tough especially given that the my my peers tend to skew pretty young right like content creators it's not like most of us are in our sort of mid thirties and have had some life experience already. There are a lot of people that I know that are in their early to mid twenties that are in this space who have not had the time necessarily, which isn't to say that like experience is the be all and end all. Right. I know lots of mature 20 year olds, but there's a degree of self-actualization that uh, I've had the opportunity to do prior to coming into this space. So it maybe doesn't shake me as much. Um, but it's definitely it's definitely a learned behavior. It's a learned thing, and you you do have to do that work and think about it a lot too. Yeah, and, and you know, a, I think a big reason why a lot of Twitch folks and other kind of really online public folks are a little bit younger is because people just burn out of it, right? If you don't have the skills to kind of create good boundaries around yourself, then it can really take a lot out of you. Hmm. Yeah, totally. I mean, the amount of emotional labor, which is to say like emotional labor in the sense of putting yourself in a position to be seen as experiencing emotions or being in a state that you maybe aren't in can be significant. It can be really significant because there is that, that sort of eternal thing of like, well, you know, I, I have a broadcast on my schedule and if I want to make money, I have to work. And if I want to work, I have to be in a particular mood for that thing. Um, and it can be taxing if you're, if you're faking it and it can be taxing if you're not right. Like being emotionally vulnerable is also monstrously taxing sometimes. So it's, it's a thing you learn to, you learn to balance or you learn just isn't possible for you. And then you don't, uh, and then you find something else to do that isn't so taxing. But for me, I feel really good about it. I feel like it's been a really positive uh, experience for me so far. 
but it's only been it's only been three years. So. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of time to just just get completely worn out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure people ask you constantly for advice on starting out on doing streaming and that kind of thing. What do you tell them? Well, men- mentorship is hugely important to me. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't be in this space if I didn't have people that I could look up to and and emulate and and watch either indirectly or directly. Um, and I think RPGs and Twitch broadcasting have this in common in that both of them have a fair degree of sort of oral transmission of, of knowledge and experience, right? People saying, this is how I do it. Uh, I mean, you look at any, any streamers page and they probably have a, this is my setup link that explains all the gear that they have or, and that's a common, it's a really common question. So for me, mentorship, especially of folks who don't have like a voice in the space is really, really important. Um, I get asked a lot, like, how do I get started on Twitch? Or I want to make a role-playing game. How do I do that? And, um, you know, I have I have some sort of generic, like, box text answers that I can, I can give people. But I'm also way more willing to engage if I think that the person that is asking is going to contribute something, like, new to the space. Um, which I guess is, like, a general way of saying, like, if they're not a straight white man, I'm going to much more highly prioritize giving them my time. Um, because that's my agenda, right? Is to, is to increase broader, more diverse voices in the spaces that I'm, I'm in. So, yeah, I mean, I like it. I really, I take a lot of value in being seen as a person with experience and knowledge to share. So even being asked those questions is like reaffirming for me. Um, I'm, I'm happy to be in that, in that place. And I, I tend to try to take the time regardless to, uh, to answer questions and, and help folks out. It sounds like you get a lot of satisfaction from that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I like, this is, this is pretty typical. I think of, of, um, the demographic to which I belong in that. I think a lot of people who sort of self-identify as being like nerdy or whatever, we really like being told that we're smart or that we like <laughs> know things. Right, right. So when people are like, Oh, Adam, I really like this thing that you're doing. How did you do that? I'm kind of mystified. We're like, yes, I am a wizard. I'm an internet <laughs> wizard. And I know things that are secret and hidden. Right. Let me share them with you. Right. Like it, it's, it's very, it's very affirming. And that's, that's super built in for me. Right. Like, the 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 best praise a, a young nerd can get is like oh you're so smart yeah yeah and and you know maybe a lot of us just grew up with like okay that's the one thing that I'm gonna get I can I can get that one thing that I cannot get a lot but I can get you are you're smart or you know you're the smart one yeah and so it's just like okay that's my golden thing <laughs> yeah right I'm nobody was ever gonna be like Adam you're so good at soccer good good job nice goal kicking you did. That was not going to happen. So I'm I'm very I'm very happy taking praise elsewhere, even if that praise comes in the form of sort of subtle, unstated acknowledgement of accomplishment. Right? That like I want to do this the way you do it, unstated because you do it well. Right? Nobody's going to try to emulate me because I'm doing it poorly. <laughs> so, or I don't know. Maybe I guess they could if they wanted to. That would be a mistake. But all right. Yeah. Well, sure. Why not? We should talk about Dungeon World. Can we talk about Dungeon World for a little bit? You you talked about it in a tweet not too long ago as part of the the hashtag April TTRPG thing that I've really been enjoying following along with BT Dubs, where you said that it's a love letter that some people read as a death threat. 
And oh yeah. It's just, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. Like such a perfect phrase. And I'm wondering if you can unpack it a tiny bit for our listeners. Yeah, it's so okay. So here's here's the thing. There is a an aspect or a, I'm I'm loath to to call it a subculture. There's an element. That sounds good. Nice, nice and nice and seedy. There's an element within tabletop RPGs that does not want new ideas or new thoughts to be a part of their experience, which is fine. That's totally fine. If you only ever want to play second edition Vampire the Masquerade for the rest of your life, do it. I, I am. If you can find people who will join your your coterie, then rock and roll. Good for you. But there there are folks who see manipulations of alterations to iterations on the traditional we are going into a dungeon with our weapons and spells to fight monsters and and do the adventure thing they see any change to that model however slight mechanically or fictionally as an affront to to their their situation um they are a, a minority they're a, a small group but they have a tendency to be vocal and when dungeon world came out there were a non-zero number of this type of feedback of people saying, instead of saying, this game is not for me, I already have AD&D, or I don't understand, or just straight up like, I don't like this game, they would say, Dungeon World is trying to kill role-playing games. Dungeon World is not a game. Dungeon World is not a role-playing game. The people who made this, they hate D&D. They want it to go away. They are trying to ruin this. And I'm like... No, like, no, not if I hated Dungeons and Dragons, I would not play it. And I would not certainly not have written a game that to me screams loudly how much I love the the mode, right? If not the the mechanisms of D&D, obviously, because that's why we wrote Dungeon World to pair that storytelling, that fictional fantasy adventure with elves and dwarves and clerics and what have you to to apply it to a different fictional um, mechanical engine. And I, for us, Dungeon World was written very explicitly to emulate that kind of, I'm just trying to tell you what my character is doing in the coolest way possible thing that we did when we first learned how to play D&D when we were 10. But, but people see it as, as trying, to, trying to destroy the, the game. And this has been a, a theme for me since we, since we first started publishing Dungeon World way, way back in the day of like seven years ago, people still think that I, I I had a a conversation with, uh, with Matt Colville about this on the weekend where he said, I don't understand why everyone thinks you hate D and D because I talk about it constantly. It's, it's a game. It's a game that takes up more than half of my, my tabletop RPG schedule right now. Uh, you know, court of swords, we did episode 70. If I don't like a game, I don't bloody well play it as much as I've played D and D. But I think the thing is, I think the misread about dungeon world in particular is that you have to love a thing unconditionally to love it. There is this weird sort of scary idea that if you even dare suggest you could do it a different way or that like with Dungeons and Dragons, you know, if I say, I don't like this rule, here's why it's perceived as an attack, right? It's that I don't, I couldn't possibly love a thing unless I love all of it. And that attitude to me is so scary and weird in a culture where so much of the content we consume is in some way or another problematic. 
in the sense that like we, we build art from a, a particular cultural standpoint. And sometimes we don't realize or don't understand how that art is being impacted by the culture around us. And so we make stuff that like, isn't particularly kind or nonviolent in the ways that maybe it should be, but it doesn't mean we need to throw them out completely. Right. If unconditional love was the only love that could exist, no one would be allowed to love anything because nothing is perfect. And that's, I think, the thing that people kind of get upset about because Dungeons, Dungeons and Dragons is a thing and Dungeon World is an homage to that. But inherently in making homage, you have to acknowledge there are other opportunities, other possibilities, things you could change. And so even though Dungeon World to me screams how much we love the things that we love about Dungeons and Dragons, some people see it as putting up an alternative. And there's that's a it's a very binary attitude that only one or the other could exist. There's a million versions of Dungeons and Dragons, only some of which are actually D&D. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny. I mean, I hear not a role-playing game or not a game at all so often and uh, like that doesn't even bother me. I mean, I would consider that like a, a prerequisite to know that I'm doing something interesting. Honestly, somebody somebody has to say that. Calling calling something not a game or calling a role playing game not a role playing game is just like the laziest criticism possible because it's never backed up. Yeah. <laughs> because I don't think I don't think that we have like a clear we don't have a clear indicator of like what a role-playing game is because it's so broad as a discipline that you can't possibly say this is not a role-playing game because good luck describing what a role-playing game is. Usually what people, what people mean when they say this isn't a role-playing game is I don't like this or I feel threatened by this or I don't understand this. And it's an easier way for them to just say like, no, this is wrong because my ideas of what these things should be must be right. Well, and, and every time I've heard a definition of a role-playing game, as soon as designers get a hold of that, they immediately want to design the game that still counts as a game that doesn't adhere to that. Like, it's just like a design challenge. It's a very exciting one, in fact. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, and that's and that's the thing, right? Like, I just think it's so... Like, can't you come up with anything d different? Like, if you watch an avant-garde film, no one in the theater is going to stand up and be like, this isn't a movie! <laughs> it's like, yeah, but okay, can you maybe come up with something more cogent to say about it? Like if you don't like a game or feel confused or upset by it, cool, express that, but express it in a way that contributes something to the discipline at large instead of just shrieking your discontent about how this isn't a game. It's it's lazy criticism, if you can even deign to call it that. Yeah, I mean, it might not, it might not even be criticism. Like, oh, not a game? Cool, I'm going to keep playing it. Mm, I love this non-game. Yeah. What a good time. It, it, Exactly. It's a Zen Cohen. How do you play a thing that is not a game? <laughs> Absolutely. The other thing um, that I've heard you say about Dungeon World is that it's it's meant in some way to trick the player into becoming a designer. And let's 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 use that as a key to maybe some of your broader thoughts about design and play and the interaction between those two things. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I've I've gone on various records as saying every on a long enough timeline, every dungeon master is a game designer, and I think that there are thousands and thousands of game designers that don't realize it or are afraid to acknowledge it, or somebody told them that you have to like publish a book and have a booth at a convention before you're allowed to be a game designer. It's the same distinction for me between a photographer and a person who takes pictures. It's a self-identification. Um, you don't have to do anything to qualify. 
uh, except to be interested in the thing, right? And we're in this space where both for photography and for game design, the tools for creating that stuff are becoming more and more prevalent and being uh, easier and easier to, to understand, both in tabletop and in video game design, right? There are tools that are bringing that more and more into the hands of people who might otherwise be like, I really like role-playing games, but I've never... I don't design things, but here's this adventure that I wrote with all these custom mechanisms and these custom monsters and treasures, but I just wrote it for my home group and I didn't submit it to Dragon Magazine. So I'm not a real game designer. And that's all just such horseshit, right? That's it's, it's gatekeeping and Dungeon World really isn't doing anything special in that regard in the sense that we, for, for what it's worth for us, were encouraged to make Dungeon World by the work that Vincent, uh, Vincent Baker did in Apocalypse World. Like Apocalypse World straight up calls out like, here are a bunch of different ways you can bend and modify and mess with Apocalypse World to make it your own. And we just kept pushing. We were just like, okay, so let's change the whole game using these tools that, uh, that Vincent gave us. And I think that we, we have the advantage with Dungeon World of being relatively easy to make new content for not mechanically. Like I think mechanically it's about the same as lots of games that have come before it, but narratively people understand thanks to Dave and Gary and decades of exposure to fantasy adventure as the primary mode of role-playing games. If you want to make your own thing for a role-playing game, chances are pretty good. It's going to be a class or a, a race or an adventure or a monster or whatever. It's going to fit the model. You know, we're not asking anybody to, you know, write a Tarkovsky film. We're just asking them to play with the tools they already think they have. And then we're encouraging them and, and sort of deobfuscating some of the ways in which that's done. There's a chapter in, in Dungeon World explicitly about that. Like, here's how you can make this stuff yourself. But I also think that the, the step we did take that, that Apocalypse World maybe didn't was formalizing the license of the game as being permissive of the creation and sale of Dungeon World content. Right. The idea that, yes, we super want you to make your own thing. Also, if you do and you credit us for our contribution to the thing that you made, you can sell it, sell your own campaign setting, sell your your pack of classes, make PDFs, make books, translate the game. The text is yours to mess with as you please. And yes, you can make money doing that. And I think that that that's the thing that nudged people a little bit to get it done, right? It wasn't just, you have my permission. It's that the text you always see at the back of a, a role-playing game that says, you have the permission to photocopy this page. You know, don't get mad at them, Kinkos. This is just a character sheet. We applied that to the whole text of the book and said, go, go to town. And if you've done that work, it doesn't just have to be for you and your friends. It's not just for personal use. You did work and that work is worth something. Your labor is worth money go sell it, make money making Dungeon World stuff. It's going to be good for us. It's going to be good for you. And it, it, it boosts the whole space. And for me, the, the deeper level there is encouraging new designers. It is saying to people like, you don't have to make your own game because God knows I didn't. Uh, you don't have to build it from scratch. Just take this thing we already did and make something new and cool out of it. Go go do the thing. And you know, we're not, we're not alone in doing that, right? Like evil hat has a, a long history in, in that sort of permissive stuff. We have the weird and complicated history as a hobby with the, the open gaming license with SRDs. 
right? There, there's varying degrees of litigiousness that exist in, in the space, but I think we're seeing more and more of that happen. Um, John Harper is doing a ton of work in this regard for uh, with Blades in the Dark, right? Where he's saying, yes, use this, use this framework. Here are the ways in which you can do it. Uh, more and more games are doing it. And I, I think it's very cool and, and very encouraging of new designers. Has it ever turned out, I mean, has it ever bitten you in the ass? Have you ever seen something with the dungeon world stamp of of approval on it that you would not have put there yourself? Well, so what's great about it is, and this is actually this is actually the secret reason why we did it, is that Sage and I just didn't want to have to bother with that stuff. So if somebody makes something terrible or socially irresponsible or just like bad design, and it's based on Dungeon World, and people come to us and say, "Why is this based on the game you made?" We can say because we don't get to say what gets made or what doesn't, right? We didn't invent the color blue. And so if you paint a beautiful picture with it, then great. But if you paint something horrible, no one's going to be like, you invented this color. You're the worst, right? We, we were able to divest ourselves of some of that responsibility. There's, there's the, the anxiety, I guess, of like lost revenue, right? Like, and I, I, I hate that it's even a thing. And I don't, I don't worry about it too much because I've got too much going on to think about it that much. But like, there are other designers who've been like, why did you do this? Why did you do it this way? There are, you know, a dozen translations of Dungeon World for which you are making nothing. You make no money off of them. Um, people can make remixed versions of your game. They can truncate it. They can do all of this stuff and you get nothing. There's no money there. But I would pay all the money we could have made doing those things, not to have to deal with all of the bureaucratic horseshit that would come along with like licensing that I don't want to have a licensing department for Dungeon World. So it's a nice way to just say, we made this art, we we put our stake in the ground, and it is the first step on a myriad of paths for a bunch of different people. And if they make stuff we don't like or that we disagree with, then that's their right to do so. And I mean, if it's something that I personally was not about, I would probably feel comfortable talking shit about it on the internet. But <laughs> Someone, someone asked me, what would you do if somebody just took the text of Dungeon World and just republished it with different art, like their own version with no changes? And my answer is always, I would just say mean things about them on Twitter. You know, that's a recourse that all of us always have. You know, that's it's always going to be there. <laughs> yeah, I would just be like, this is a dirtbag move. Look at these dirtbags. Don't buy their game. And that's, that's me as a person, right? Like I wouldn't, as, as an official, a, a sort of official communications channel, Dungeon World doesn't care what happens to it because it's not a person. It's just a thing. And we made it and it's ours, but we've explicitly given people channel to, channels to make it their own and what they do with it and how they, they raise their kids is not up to me. You know, there's, there's kind of a beauty in that ability to let go and that ability to not get caught up in something that I think as an artist, like it is hard actually for a lot of people to let go of that. Yeah. And we, I mean, we've, we've had to, I mean, not recently, but early on, you know, caught up in that excitement of releasing a thing and then people making stuff for, for the thing that we like, you know, we, we were, we used to be more comfortable like retweeting, like somebody made something based on dungeon world, but the volume of it and having to worry about like, is this something that we want to be able to talk about? And then having to read something all the way through and get a fuller understanding. And especially because cool art can come from crappy people. There is even still that thing where if somebody gave me a book and they were like, this is based on Dungeon World. I, I found it at a store and I read it and I was like, I love this. I could post about it. And then someone could be like, yo, the person that made that is like a 
transphobic Nazi, I would be like, damn, well, I did not know that. And now I look like a jerk because I didn't do the research. I just don't have the time to do the research. And I hope that transphobes and Nazis are not reading my game. Put Dungeon World down, jerks. You're not allowed. I'm forbidding you. But like, I can't, I'm, you know, you can't control that. Stuff. Yeah, you can't actually control it. And, and who knows, who knows what life experiences and opportunities you would miss by trying to pursue that. Totally. And also like it, it, to me, it feels like trying to combat piracy. Like, yeah, you can take steps, but like the amount of effort you're going to take is never going to be as much as the collected effort of the people that want to foil you. Right. So we just, I just, it's available to people and they can do what they will with it. And I hope that they, I hope that they make me proud. And the way that I try to encourage or, or enable that sense of like someone made something cool with Dungeon World is, is community building. It's like being a part of design communities and encouraging new designers and being like, oh, you're making a Dungeon World hack. That sounds cool. Tell me more about that. How can I help you? Um, because again, boosting the, boosting the signals that I want to hear in the world and, trying to to combat things that way is seems more productive it feels more productive anyway yeah well if it's more satisfying right yeah yeah totally I, you know what one of my last questions is just gonna be uh have you cracked open cthulhu dark and if so what do you think of it um i just i just just got it and mm-hmm. i have not had a chance to read it yet i'm excited because because i remember it when it was like an 11 by 17 piece of paper folded in half. Um, And now it's like a, now it's like a book and there's all these pages and stuff. So I'm super curious to see what the little nano game that was Cthulhu dark uh, grew up to be. Um, Also, I, it's a role-playing game about Cthulhu, which I'm so tired of Cthulhu, but I bought it anyway. Cause I was just like, I'm so excited. Yeah. Cthulhu (laughs) is like the Mickey mouse of tabletop role-playing games. And that, that shit is everywhere. Like if you go to Gen Con, you cannot walk three paces in any direction without seeing some kind of mythos themed merchandise. Oh yeah. It's brutal. Yeah. It's, it's insane. It's so, and it's so wrung out too. Like there's nothing cosmologically horrific about Cthulhu anymore. Well, no, he's just a little, cause he is a Mickey mouse. There's just this little cartoon character. And, and like, I feel like 90% of the time that I see Cthulhu represented, it is like a, an ironic, like funny, cute character to the point where now that is my default. And then if I were to see a serious representation of Cthulhu, I'd be like, oh, right. <laughs> yeah, it's so surreal. And and I think that this is what happens when you you like put that kind of thing in the hands of, of nerds is they will fetishize the thing and it will get repurposed and, and republished and created. And it's like Cthulhu Monopoly, right? Like we we're in a space where this thing that was supposed to represent the nihilistic horror of the universe I mean, okay, you know what? To be fair, Monopoly is still pretty nihilistic and, and horrific. So maybe that's a good a good match. But yeah, it's it's really strange, right? The idea of the the fear of the unknown being represented by stuffed animals and flasks and wallets and like every conceivable merchandising possible. Uh, it's a whole other kind of her uh, of horror than I think Lovecraft intended. Um, so yeah, buying buying it was more about like being interested in, in Graham's initial design and how it kind of grew up. I bought it as a game designer. Um, but also because I wonder, I have this thing where I make declarative statements like horror and role-playing games is nearly impossible to do properly. 
Um, but I still, I still try. I still wonder. I'm still like, maybe this game will do different. And I, that's a, a deep seated designer optimism that I'm like, prove me wrong, somebody, please. Like someone who's a better designer or a more creative person or someone with a new view on this thing, show me that I'm wrong. Like I would love to, I would love to find this game, read it, and be like, whoa, I never mind. I changed my mind. This game does horror really well, and so I'm, I'm curious. There's, there's a lot. There's a lot riding on on it. It probably won't blow my mind in some inconceivable way, but I think every design is valuable, regardless of whether it's revolutionary or not. I'm curious about your thoughts on horror. What what makes you say that it's that it's nearly impossible? So the the experience I've I've had with horror role playing games is they tend instead to be discomfort role playing games. I think that fear is so intensely personal. It's like it's like um uh, attraction. So in a role playing game, if if I'm uh, GMing and I you you know you go into a tavern and I say there is an elf woman in the tavern, she's very attractive. I don't get to say that. Like that's not my call, right? It's your your character gets to to decide what they are or aren't uh, attracted um, or you do for them. Horror I think is the same way in that most times people rely on telling each other that something is scary rather than actually feeling any kind of fear or deep-seated horror uh, from, from the events of a game. Because I think that what might make me feel frightened or tense or whatever other experience you want me to have will not feel the same way for, for other people. Um, it might make them laugh, right? What's a, what's scary to me might be absurd to someone else or the idea that it could be scary is absurd. The other thing is that people break tension with laughter and jokes and silliness. So if you're playing a horror role-playing game and things do start getting scary, nine times out of 10, someone will try to break that tension either with a, a joke or just by like laughing. And then everybody laughs because we don't want to feel scared. And so it's really hard to have a communal storytelling experience. The buy-in is so, so high and the pre predetermined conversation has to ha take place to like really talk about we're all going to work on making this scary together deflates the fear of the unknown because you know what's going to happen because you had that conversation about what's scary and what's not. And it's I just it isn't a thing that I think we can combine very easily with uh, the improvised nature of of role playing games. Um, and I think also that mechanisms can take people out of that moment too. Like I'm, I might be scared that there is a, you know, a cadre of deep ones hiding in the basement. But if I am trying to remember how many bonus percentiles I get to my stealth check and I'm tracking it on my character sheet and I'm doing all of the mechanical stuff, I'm probably not going to be thinking about going down into the basement and how scary and tense it is. Um, I think that most horror games end up being uh, either about the GM trying to like trigger discomfort or upset in the players um, because that's an easy way to get at it. If you know somebody is scared of spiders and you just describe spiders in your game, there you go. You made them uncomfortable. That's like fear, right? Or it devolves into amateur theatrics, right? Where it's just like, cool, we're playing a horror role-playing game and you can tell because of all the black candles and the lights are off and no one can see their character sheet and I'm playing spooky music on the on the computer. Like it it just feels, you know, it's terrible, exactly. And, and I've just, maybe, again, maybe it's just me. Like I've never had uh, a personally like sort of fear. Tension is easy and discomfort is easy, but what I would imagine to be horror in a role-playing game just isn't, it's just not there. It's just not something that the, the discipline um, does well. We don't have the technology for it. 
um, I, yeah, I think that, I think that, um, Epidiaravical's, um, dread comes closest, but I think it's more attention generator than it is like a horror role-playing game. Well, from what you're telling me, I think it sounds like you need to have a game where players are asking each other questions about what is over there and what is underneath that rock and what is in the basement rather than being told everything you're saying just sounds like a design challenge. And so I love that you're saying it on my podcast because I just want everyone to disagree with you so hard. Yes, no, please. And don't, don't disagree with me on Twitter, make a game and prove me wrong. Right. Like, like do, do the thing. And that's, that's the thing. Like I'm, I'm happy to make ridiculous statements like horror is impossible. True horror is impossible in role-playing games. But it's not because I want you to not try. It's because I want you to be like, screw you, Adam, and make something that that proves that I'm wrong. So I can be like, look, they, they did it. The, the thing I said was impossible. I'm a moron. Look at this. This is perfect. <laughs> it's, it's the new not game. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think that's the thing, right? Is that it's like what what is and isn't possible is not set. Uh, it's simply what is and isn't possible in my or any given person's extremely limited experience of being a human being in the grand scheme of things, right? Like you, I'm coming from a very specific background. I've got all of the baggage of my, my culture and my design experience and the games that I have played and what experiences I had with those games. And when I make declarative statements, that's just because that's what's true for me. And I'm certainly not a hundred percent of everything and nobody is. And so that's what, I mean, that's the fundamental fun and excitement of role-playing games is that you don't have to be everything yourself. You have your players and your GM and you have your group and you have the rules and you have the designer of the rules at a distance. They are with you at the table and you're all contributing to this thing that because there's so many people doing it, you can be surprised. You can, you can be startled and, and come across the unexpected. And that's what I think is beautiful about role-playing games. That is such a lovely note to end on. Uh, well, it was lovely having you on the show. If my listeners want to see what you're up to and find out about your current projects, where should they go? So the the best places to find me are going to be uh, on Twitter. I'm at Skinny Ghost on Twitter, and that's that's good for asynchronous conversation. Uh, and then you can catch me live uh, on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Adam Coble, and that's where I do most of my my streaming i'm on a lot of different channels but i'll always I'll always host through there so those are the two best places to get it great well thank you very much i have you hope you have a lovely evening thank you my pleasure to Adam for joining us and as always thank you for listening if you have thoughts on today's show you can always email me that's backstorypodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet at me at backstorycast remember please to check out Starcrossed on kickstarter I promise you will be delighted music for backstory is provided by Ujiko the track is called thinking of you and you can hear more at soundcloud.com slash ujico they're also on YouTube and Spotify and wherever else you get your cool jams. Backstory is part of the One Shot Podcast Network. You can go to oneshotpodcast.com to find more great shows like One Shot, 
One Shot is an actual play podcast where host James D'Amato leads a rotating cast of improvisers, game designers, and other notable nerds through a variety of role-playing games. Every month, One Shot plays a new game with a new cast of players, and it's usually pretty hilarious. All that and more at oneshotpodcast.com. Talk to you later, friends. Thank you.